0: to the Cranmer Fellows Podcast. My name is Jonathan and I'm the host here at the Cranmer Fellows. There's not too much to say today before we get into our topic. Matt and I were at our diocesan synod last week and uh, that was a great, great synod, um, but um, I'm still pretty t- tired from it. Um, still recovering from that. Uh, So today's episode is uh, a sermon that Matt gave a couple weeks back on John chapter 15 and uh, what Jesus says about uh, being the true vine and we, his church, being the branches. Um, So uh, without further ado, we'll just jump right into the sermon. I hope and pray that it's uh, edifying for you. Father, we thank you for your son who is the true vine and in whom we have uh, any strength that we do have to produce any fruit. And we ask that uh, you'd help us this morning to hear him uh, and to uh, abide in him as he asks, as he commands. And I pray that uh, by abiding in him, we will be a people who bear fruit. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I know you've had a lot of scripture read uh, to you this morning. We're Anglicans, we read a lot of scripture in the service. But I'm going to read just a little bit more. It's from Isaiah chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but you don't have to. You can just listen. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones... "'and planted it with choice vines. "'He built a watchtower in the midst of it "'and hewed out a wine vat in it, "'and he, he, looked, he looked for it to yield grapes, "'but it yielded wild grapes. "'And now, judge between me and my vineyard. "'What more was there to do for my vineyard "'that I have not done in it? "'Why?' did it yield wild grapes. I, I personally feel Isaiah chapter 5 in my bones. We have, Ann and I have been gardening for several years now, and you build the beds, or we build the beds, and fill them with good soil. And you put in fertilizer, and you, you plant something nice. You buy, you choose a good-looking good, good looking thing. It looks like it's going to be good on a picture. And you put it in the ground, and, and you're thinking to yourself, this is going to be great. I'll, I'll, when the things come up, I'll be able to sit outside in my backyard and all the flowers blooming and the vegetables coming up, and I'll be able to write my sermon out there or, or read a book or just kind of sit, and it'll be very, it'll be very pleasant. And, and so you wait for the things to come up and bloom and, and grow, and, and they finally do. And it's beautiful. It's everything you can want for about a week, for about a week. And, and then come the pests and the blight and the diseases and all of your vegetables get eaten up and your flowers stop blooming. And in my case, personally speaking, I can say most of that's probably my fault because I don't have the patience to read all the gardening books. So I really don't have anything, any idea what I'm doing. I just kind of stick the things in the ground. but. This vineyard owner, this gardener, in Isaiah chapter 5, he knew what he was doing. The the beloved here, the the vineyard owner, did everything right. He found a fertile hill. He, He plowed up the hill. He cleared the stones. He planted choice vines, good vines. But the grapes somehow came up Wild, which could also be sour or bitter. And it's not his fault. He planted choice vines in just the right place, at just the right time, and in just the right way. And I don't even, because I haven't read the gardening books, I don't know if it's even botanically possible to, to plant a choice or a domesticated vine and have it come up wild. I don't think that actually happens. But I also think that's the point. The vineyard is unnaturally, catastrophically sick. And and it shouldn't be sick. Now, in case you've wondered, um, Isaiah, of course, is not taking a break from profiting in order to to sing about gardening. He's he's, he's still profiting. In fact, in the same chapter, he writes, uh, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God gave Israel his law. He lived with them in his tabernacle. He gave them sacrifices to atone for their sins. He planted them in a good land flowing with milk and honey. He cleared that land of enemies and he provided rain in due season. He gave them Moses and he gave them Joshua and he gave them Samuel and he gave them David, but still, still the, the fruit was, was wild, it was bitter. The kings, the priests, the paid prophets, the, the people, even, all of them produced rotten fruit. Now, sure, they 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 you go back and you read the Old Testament and you'll see they offered they offered the sacrifices and they said the prayers and they observed the feasts of Yahweh. They did all that stuff, but their hearts, their hearts they gave to the high places and to the spreading trees. And to Baal and Molech and to Asherah, they gave their sons and their daughters to them for sacrifices. Every every Jew, every Jew knows the story of the vine and of the vineyard. It's not just in Isaiah, Jeremiah tells a story just like it. You see it in Psalm 80, 82. And the vine or the vineyard is always Israel. And God is always the gardener. And the fruit, and you see it in all the vineyard stories, the fruit is always bad. So then, after a final Passover feast of lamb and bread and wine and painful news about leaving and betrayal and falling away, Jesus says to his disciples, 11 of them. The 12th is gone. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Now, if you're a disciple, again, you, you might think, he's telling it wrong. That's not how the story goes. My, my dad is a son of Abraham. My mom is a daughter of Abraham. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I observed the statutes. I'm an Israelite. And Israel is the true vine. The vine hasn't behaved so well in the past, that's true, but, but it's a lovely image, isn't it? A vine springing up from the ground, climbing a wall, entwining itself around a trellis, shooting out tendrils to, to catch, catch the sun. The vine is a, is a picture of life. Thriving, pervasive life. The vine produces grapes, from which you make wine, which God has given to gladden the hearts of men and women. So vine is also joy. It's also a picture of great joy and happiness. In a dry land, a vineyard is a a treasure. Israel has always been the vine. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm the true vine? Now, I want you to notice the the definite article, first of all, in answering that question. I'm the true vine. That that tells us there's only one true vine. And then you should notice the word true. Others might come along and claim vinehood, but, but they're not real vines. There's one true vine, and I'm it. Life, joy, fruit, those things Jesus is saying come from me and from no one else. The bridegroom, you might remember the bridegroom. The bridegroom didn't think ahead. He, he didn't buy enough wine for the wedding feast. And now he only had left uh, six large vats of, of water but he's going to be okay because he invited the true vine to his party. And so there was wine. Now, Peter and John and Andrew and the rest and Caiaphas and the rabbis and the priests, all born of the house of Abraham, all the men anyway, circumcised in the eighth day, all of that's well and good, but all of it's really just six vats of perfectly good water. Without Jesus, there's no wine. Purity, goodness, faithfulness, true worship, perfect love for God and neighbor. The vine dresser requires all of those from you and you don't have them. You can't produce them. But God, because he loves you and because he loves me and he loves the whole world, took on our nature and lived and died as one of us and rose again to produce the good and true fruit I'm the true vine Jesus says and my father is the vine dresser I give life and I give joy Every branch in me he says that does not bear fruit he takes away uh, if you've been to my house in about June or July, you know that you go to, to the backyard. You'll know that we have a lot of roses, roses back there. And the reason we have a lot of roses back there is because Anne Anne loves roses, and you know, she puts them all over the house on tables and stuff. And it's just she likes roses. And um, if if you she always used to say too before we had roses, if you love me, if you love me, you'd go and buy me roses. And so. Um, I don't know if you've ever, if you bought roses lately, but they're pretty expensive. You can buy six roses, six roses for like 15 bucks. That's a lot of money. So a while back, I thought, I got an idea. I'm going to plant roses in our backyard and they'll, they'll grow and there'll be lots of roses. And then when Ann comes to me and she says, if you love me, you'll buy me roses. I can say, sweetheart. Come with me, and I can take her out to the backyard, and I can give her a pair of scissors and say, here you go, honey, all the roses you want. And, and our life would be happy, and I would have a lot more money. But it didn't quite work out like that. She still wants me to go uh, buy her roses. The reason I bring this up, though, is because the roses that we do have in the backyard are terrible to keep up. You've got to deal with swarms of Japanese beetles, and you've got leaves that rust, and you have to constantly trim these things and cut away the dead stuff to, to keep them blooming. Now, on, on roses, I'm not sure about vines, on roses, there'll be a branch that's perfectly fine. It looks great. It's green, it's got leaves on it, it's got flowers on it, but then about halfway up, it just all the green stops and it's brown all the way up and it's, it's dead from that point. And you've got to cut it right there uh, on that line, or maybe just below that line. Uh, to keep the live part living and get get rid of the dead stuff, or else you won't have a lot of blooms. You just got to do that. Now, again, I don't know how how vines work, but I do think it's a general principle to be received that taking away dead stuff is usually good for living stuff. I was trying to think of a real-life illustration for what Jesus is getting across here. What does it look like when the Father takes away dead branches? But I don't think the disciples need an illustration. They've just seen it happen. Judas, he's, he's gone. He's, he's left the feast, and he's not coming back. Now, you don't, you don't want to think of, of Judas as, as some maniacally evil guy. Sometimes we can do that. He's, he wasn't plotting, I don't think, all along to betray Jesus. Jesus always knew he would, but Judas didn't always know He would. He came to Jesus probably because he thought that Jesus would do what everyone else thought that Jesus would do. He would take out the Romans and he would reestablish David's throne. And if you read through the Gospels, all the way up to the end, Judas did some objectively very good things. Jesus sent him out with another of the disciples. And Judas, by the power of Christ, healed sick people and he raised dead people. And he cast out demons. And and Judas preached the gospel. He preached about Jesus in a true way. There's no indication that he was a, a false teacher. He was close, he was connected to Jesus. If I were there or you were there, I think we'd be impressed. He's doing all these good things. Look at the fruit that Judas is bearing. But he was dead. And he'd always been dead. And the father cut him away. Let Judas be a warning to you. If, if you're raised in the church, for example, you, you grow up, you just grow up knowing how to talk and how to act. You know what kind of behavior and what kind of words win praise. And you know what earns no praise from from church people you you don't have you don't have to trust in Jesus to do any of the things that when you praise in the church or to avoid those things that don't when you praise so because that's true it's not at all uncommon to find a person who has been baptized and who takes communion and who's super kind and gentle and nice to be around who believes all the facts about Jesus and and says the creed without crossing his or her fingers but has for his or her entire life avoided the question am i a sinner do the thoughts of my heart condemn me do i love god with all my heart and with all my strength and do i obey his commands Not just with the works of my hands, but in my thoughts and in my my words. And the answer, in case you haven't asked it until now, and the answer to that question every time, for everyone but Jesus, is no. I don't follow God's commands. No, I don't love Him with all my heart and my mind and my strength. No, I'm not bearing His fruit like I should. I need forgiveness, I need grace. I need a savior. I need Jesus. Sometimes if you grow up in the right circumstances, you can think you're doing all the things you need to do, but you've never, ever come to Jesus. And that's the first thing. Then and only then will you be a living branch. Then and only then, all the other stuff you may have been doing before becomes good fruit. Before it wasn't. Now it is. Otherwise, Unless you come to Jesus, if you don't come to Jesus, it can look really good, but still be all rotten. I've done a lot of funerals. A very good funeral home can do a lot with a corpse. The right makeup, the right clothes, the right combing of the hair and the glossing of the lips, and the dead man doesn't look so dead, and the dead woman looks like she's just taking a nice nap. Alistair Begg uh, talks about Christmas trees, and I've used this illustration before. I love it. You go to the place, you find a, a great-looking Christmas tree, just the right size, and you bring it home, and you hang your lights on it, and you put all the baubles on, and it looks beautiful. You turn off the lights, and it's the most beautiful thing you've seen in a long time. You're just going to sit there and stare at it, but it's dead. In fact, sometimes it looks more beautiful than a real tree with real fruit, but it's, but it's dead. You can think, it's easy to be confused, you can think that that good fruit is just doing good. So I'll, I'll do these good things and I'll give God his fruit. No. Let's say, let's say there's a man uh, by the side of the road who's, who's desperately thirsty. What does God say to do? God says to give the man something to drink. That is an objectively good thing to do. But you don't have to trust in Jesus to do that. Anyone can do that. Sometimes non-Christians do a better job of taking care of people than the Christians do. But with regard to a person standing before God, the very first and the only necessary thing for you and for me is to repent and to trust in his son Jesus. If a person says to God, I don't need your son. I'm fine without him. But look, here's this shiny apple. That's wild and bitter fruit. You can't give God an apple on the one hand and shove away his son on the other. He doesn't want your apple. He won't take your apple in that case. But if you trust in Jesus, and then you give the man some water, Even if your motives aren't perfect, God receives that as a beautiful gift. Peter calls it in his first epistle, a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is the only way any gift, any offering, any good work is acceptable to God. And that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus makes it acceptable because he's made you clean by his blood. Speaking of clean, we see there in verse 2, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now the word uh, in verse 2, we saw that the father takes away the dead. And the word for taking away is ire. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right. Irei. But to prune is kath-ire. It could also be translated clean. There's a word play here. Irei, kath-ire. When you prune something, you're cleaning. You're cleaning the vine. You're clearing away the excess growth. And that makes a living branch produce more. So this is what you do in verse 2 to a branch that's that's living. Uh, Cutting away, pruning, is good for the branch. It was very good for the church, for Judas, to be exposed and taken away. It was very painful because everybody loved Judas. Jesus loved Judas, but it was good that he was removed from the vine. I remember a couple of years ago at our old church, uh, a couple visited. A long time ago. They're, you, they're so long gone, you, no one would even know them. I think any now, any, any way anymore. But they visited our old church and they came to the service and they liked it. They liked it so much they wanted to join. Um, they were they were baptized. They were ready to serve. All of that. Now back then. We were super desperate to grow, so if you just like walked in, we wouldn't ask you any questions. We sometimes didn't just put you on the vestry because we wanted people to come in and stay, and we wanted to get them involved. Uh, but so they came out right in, they joined, they they got along with people. They were doing fine. They were nice, very nice, very nice people. Um, a little bit later, and I forget what passage I was preaching on, but I, I mentioned that you know when you get married, your commitment needs to be for life. You you that's death to you, and unless there's adultery or something like that. It's death to you part. And as I was preaching, I remember their faces. Uh, The man suddenly got expressionless, and I could tell he was angry, and the woman got very uncomfortable. And so I expected that they would come to see me later on in the week, and so they did. And it turns out that they were married, Except not to each other they were they were they were married to two other people he, she had a husband somewhere else and he had a wife somewhere else. What happened is they were online and they found each other they used to be high school sweethearts and they were surfing online and they found each other and they oh, they remembered their high school love and they left their spouses and their children and they they got together and they moved to Binghamton and they came to Good Shepherd and so I' was, they were telling me all this and I, and and I, I had to say, I, I love you guys very much, but this isn't a good thing. So you need to go back to your, your spouse, your, your husband, your wife, and you need to try and fix your marriage. And they weren't happy about that at all because they found their true love. So they, they continued to come to Good Shepherd. They didn't take communion anymore, but they just continued to come because they liked the people, and they, I guess they wanted to sit there. Um, and the, the, it didn't work, though, because as time went on, they just kept getting angrier and angrier. At things I would say or preach, and they were trying to get other people angry at things I would say or preach. And so ultimately, they got so angry they couldn't stay anymore and, and they left. And it was terribly painful because I liked them. They're nice people, and, and a lot of people in the congregation liked them, but it was good. The Father was pruning Good Shepherd, it was a good thing. It's probably not a good idea for them to stay. He prunes individuals, too, as a new Christian, uh, just coming out of the honeymoon period. During the honeymoon period, everything's wonderful, but when you're coming out of the honeymoon period of being a Christian, I remember looking at the lives of my non-Christian friends, and they, you know, they were all floating around, floating around, not literally floating, but they were just kind of floating through life, making lots of money and partying all the time and cheating on each other and drinking way too much, way too often, without any sense of guilt or shame or anything, they were just having a great time, and in the, my heart of hearts, I kind of envied them. Wow, that looks—I I used to have that much fun too. Meanwhile, I'm—you know—I'm working in a call center, not making enough money to barely—I'm barely making enough money for ends to ends to meet, and and now I have this new sense of conviction chasing me around, so that I I can't do the things I used to do. And love doing without feeling really bad about it. And that didn't go away. And as I matured, God began taking things away from me. He would let me fail in lots of ways, not just one or two, many ways. He brought sorrow into my life and he brought loss into my life in ways that seemed to exceed. The losses and sorrows of the non-Christian people around me. Of course, God also blessed me. But the Christian, so this is true not just for me, it's true for you. The Christian, says Paul, is always being given over to death. And he doesn't mean spiritual death. What he means is there's always a tinge of sorrow or pain or suffering, along with the blessing and life and joy that you have in Christ. God's not punishing you, but the Father is the perfect gardener. He knows what is needed, and he knows what must be cut away. There's there's an overarching reason for all of it. At one point, um, Paul was in such danger and distress he thought he was going to die. And so here's what he wrote about it. This is in in 2 Corinthians. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Now, that's that's an important point, just because if you hear someone ever say, God will never test you beyond your strength. Yes, he will. Uh, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's what pruning does. That's why he prunes. So that you, in, in your sorrow or loss or conviction for your sin, for any of that, you will, in those circumstances, cling ever more closely to the vine and, and be less and less satisfied with the fleeting vanities of, of the world. The, the, the kind of cutting. That pulls you in closer. To Jesus. And to life. It hurts. But only living branches feel that kind of pain. If you do. That means you're in the vine. That's that your father is pruning you. Already, Jesus says there in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now you might say, wait a minute, um, if they're already clean there in verse 3, what's with the pruning or the cleaning in verse 2? Well, you might remember back in chapter uh, 13, Jesus said something very similar. He said, The one who is bathed doesn't need to wash, except for his feet, but he, he is completely clean. And he says to his disciples, You are clean. Now, he wasn't talking about bodies in chapter 13, any more than he's talking about feet, or, I mean, or any more than he's talking about uh, branches, literal branches here in chapter 15. He meant there, and he means here, something like this. You You have trusted in me because my word has pierced your heart and it's given you life. You're justified in the Father's sight. You're declared righteous. You have eternal life that's not going to be taken away from you. You have that by faith because of my word. You're clean. You'll always be clean. But you're still prone to wander. You still pull away. You still sin. So to keep you on the vine and to keep you bearing fruit, he cleans. God prunes. He uses the scriptures to convict you. He uses trouble and loss to draw you close. He cuts away so that you will cling to Jesus even more. So that you will remain, so that you will abide in him. In fact, that's the first commandment in the passage. Don't see a commandment before this until you get to verse 4. Abide in me, that's the command, as I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You should notice here, and it's interesting, that Jesus doesn't command you to bear fruit. You might expect him to say, well, you should where you go out there and you start bearing fruit. He doesn't do that. He, he tells you what to do so that you will bear fruit. To bear fruit, you've, 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 you've got to abide in me. There's a lot of, of commandments out there for Christians. There's a whole bunch of commandments out there. And, and yes, you're expected to, to follow them all, even though you're not going to. But, uh, but all the commandments that he gives you go, go way beyond giving a thirsty guy some water. Uh, loving God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, loving your enemies, not lying or coveting or lusting or getting angry uh, without reason, Uh, I'm sure you've noticed almost all of those are, are not within your grasp. I personally am weak. I don't often want, I don't even want sometimes to do what God tells me to do. And even when I want to, I don't have the strength to pull it off. So if I'm going to do anything acceptable to God, I need a power beyond my power. I need a strength beyond my strength. I need a will firmer than my will. If I'm going to bear good fruit, he's going to have to do that in me. So I've got to abide in him. Abide means remain. That's what all it means, remain. Hold on. Take hold of him and don't let go. That's the only way you bear any fruit at all. Just take a minute and think of, of the sin that you struggle most with. What is it? Don't, don't say it out loud. Just think of it in your, in your head. Um, what is it? How, how do you go about combating that? What do you do? You, you try as hard as you can not to do that thing? Well, you should. I hope you do. I hope you try not to do, do that thing. But that's not your first move. Your first move is going to him. And you lay your problem out to him. Let's say, uh, let's say that, that you're, you have an honesty problem. When the truth might get you in trouble, you just don't tell it. And so you go to Jesus and you say, I've, I've gotten through my life lying most of the time about things. I've on my life exaggerating too much and I cover over things that make my life, uh, to make my life smoother. I don't even want to tell the truth. But I know that this displeases you, and I want, to, I want what you want. Please forgive me and help me. And if you don't want what he wants, say, Lord, I don't even want what you want. Help me to want what you want so I can do it. He promises that if you confess your sin, he will forgive you your sin and cleanse you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Then you come to church and you hear his word, which, which feeds you and strengthens you. And you take the wine and the bread, trusting Jesus to cleanse you and feed you and help you through his, body, through his body and blood. Abiding in him means you go to him and rely on him and remain in him and you stay with him forever. For all things. That's, that's the only way. I'm the vine, Jesus says. This is the last verse we'll cover. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, again, Jesus is not saying here that you can't mow your neighbor's lawn or you can't give a man a glass of water. Of course you can. Of course you can. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you can do all those things. But you cannot produce any fruit that lasts forever or that pleases the Father. Only the true vine produces that fruit. So you must turn to him and cling to him today and always. Because whoever abides in him, notice this, bears much fruit. Now Jesus might have said something like, whoever abides in me and I in him, well, he might bear some fruit maybe one day. Who knows? If he does the work, maybe he'll, no, he there's, none of, there's no if here. There's no question. There's no concern. He will, she will bear not just fruit, much fruit. A whole bunch of fruit. There'll be a cornucopia of fruit. Or you might say, then, given that, oh, well, when I compare myself to, to that guy, that other Christian over there, I don't see much fruit. I've got maybe a wormy apple, and that guy has a whole bunch of, whole bunch of stuff coming off his, off his branches. Don't do that people start off in very different places. A a Christian who comes to Jesus after a life in the mafia, a mobster, his fruit is probably not going to be on the surface anyway, as shiny as the Christian who was raised a church kid. You're going to notice the church kid's fruit better. But for the mafia guy... I mean, not wanting to kill the guy who disrespects you, that's huge fruit. I mean, you're not going to want to murder somebody. That's good, good. Fruit is abounding in the mafia guy for not murdering people. Now, for the church guy, the fruit's going to be a little bit different. He's get, his fruit will maybe be something like deciding not to look down on the mafia guy because he smokes like a chimney and he curses like a sailor. That would be the, the church guy's fruit. Not being self-righteous, maybe. Here's the thing the further you go in Christ the closer you draw to Jesus the more light you have and what that means is the less progress you'll notice because the light is brighter and you see much more that needs to be cleaned up than you did when it was darker don't despair you are bearing more fruit than you than you know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ you are bearing much fruit lift up your eyes from your own soul and look at Christ look to Jesus trust him keep your eyes on him and your heart with him and abide let's pray Father we do thank you that we have a promise from your son that he will uh, within us bear fruit that will be pleasing to you. Uh, We ask you to help us to remember that and to lean on him and to cling to him for help in overcoming our sins and living in a way that is is pleasing to you. Uh, Lord I pray for anyone here who has never turned to and believed in Jesus um, that you might uh, this morning uh, by your word uh, make that person clean, bring that person to faith in Jesus. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to give, you'll help, you'll give us endurance as we go through those times of pruning and uh, bearing more fruit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.